This episode is sponsored by Indeed. Finding the people you need to help your business thrive doesn't have to be a second job. With Indeed, you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. So reclaim your time and find the people you need fast. Start hiring now at Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Hi, and welcome to Deep Dive with Jamie Stein, where we take a deep dive look at all things reality TV, pop culture, and the world at large. I'm an intuitive and an empath, which means I pick up on the thoughts, feelings, and energy percolating in other people in the world around me. I believe there is meaning waiting to be found at every turn, if you're willing to see it. So join me as we dismantle everything from trash TV to high spiritual concepts and learn more about ourselves, each other, and how we're all connected. Hello, and welcome to Deep Dive with Jamie Stein. I do not know exactly where this episode is going to pop up in the initial queue, but for all intents and purposes, this is my inaugural episode, so I'm very excited to be here. And I'm particularly excited to bring in my guest today, who is a good friend and also a brilliant colleague, Piper Sample. And um, Piper, I actually met in my uh, training program. I'm certified in a body-based psychotherapy called Core Energetics. It was a four-year professional training program. And I had the privilege of having Piper as my class assistant, where we got to know each other. So Piper, I know you yourself are also certified in Core Energetics. And why don't you just give us a little brief um, description of, you know, who you are in your work and your training and what you do with clients. Hi, Jamie. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I work with individuals, groups, couples. I started out as a massage therapist and just started realizing there was, you know, so much help inside the body. And as I was working with people that way, I didn't have a clue about how to work with what was coming up for people. So I I entered into... uh, uh, training and energy work in the beginning, and then I moved on to cornergetics because that was part of our curriculum. And from there, moved on to radical aliveness, which lets go of the expert model of knowing exactly what people are inclined to believe to be true about themselves. And we just basically take deep dives all the time where we get to figure out um, what people's patterns are, what they're working with. Um, and to help them expand so that they can um, know more about who they are in relationship to other people in the world. So for people who are listening to this who may not be acquainted with uh, the various modalities that we're mentioning, I also am certified in radical aliveness, which grew out of core energetics. That's where we met. And um, just for a little bit of background, when you mentioned, for example, um, throwing the expert model out the window, Core energetics is a form of psychotherapy that's based on the idea essentially of not diagnosing people, not um, labeling people with certain, you know, diagnostic terms, and instead really staying open to each individual's brand of knowing, each individual's brand of creative wisdom, each individual's brand of leadership, how they want to bring themselves to the world, how they experience themselves in the world. So, It's a form of psychotherapy that's really about let's drop all assumptions and support people and clients from a place of really being willing to hang out in the unknown. 
with them. <laughs> My last question for you, Piper, before we jump into it is, do you, would you consider yourself a therapist? No, no. I'm a, I, I call myself a practitioner. I'm, I'm in relationship with the people that I work with. And it's been a good question to ask lately. Like, really, what is healing? What is therapy? It's a therapeutic model for sure. I'm a I'm somebody that I'm I'm helping people reflect, but I, I feel like I'm a partner with people on their journey. Mm-hmm. And I'll just say, as someone who's known you and really had the privilege of uh, receiving a lot of your support over the years, I would never choose to call you a therapist because it just feels like um, such a limiting word for how I experience you and the way that you hold space for people. And I feel like you are someone who has your own very deep relationship with intuition and um, just, yeah, feeling into the energy that's in the room and with the individual, the flavor of your presence feels shamanistic to me. So um, I just, I just want to reflect um, that uh, I feel like you embody a very sort of multifaceted and deep wisdom and field. And that's a huge part of why I'm so happy you're here. Well, thank you. That's so nice. And in addition to all that, you are one of the only other people in this community who is also a (laughs) Housewives super fan, which the one thing I want to say about that, that I was thinking about in advance of this episode is the fact that we didn't even discover that we both watched Housewives until after the training. And it just seems like such a lost opportunity (laughs) when I think about like being out, we would do these like what, four or five day modules, five times a year where we'd go up to Malibu. The modules were so intense. You're doing your own personal work. You're supporting your classmates in their personal work. You're learning about these deep therapeutic modalities. And oh man, it just would have been so nice on a Saturday night to be able to like kick back in the, in the, in the dining area and just talk about Vicki Gumbelson and Bethany Frankel and just be able to like have a little release. I think I had like um, housewife shame. It, it, it was like sugar, you know, something that you do in the dark and you don't tell anybody about. I don't. How did we even discover that we were both fans? I don't remember. I don't remember, but I do have a vague memory of it really being like um, a moment for me where the heavens parted open and I suddenly realized, oh my God, I've got someone I can talk about the housewives with on a much, much deeper level. And suddenly there was the gap that was in my life that I didn't even know existed was suddenly filled. And I feel like (laughs) that's the gap I want to fill on this podcast for others. So what a perfect segue to jump into what's currently going on in the Housewives universe, which is um, we are coming to the end of the 12th season of The Real Housewives of New York City. As always, it's been a very dark, provocative journey with the New York women. And I know that we've both been very drawn to the role that alcohol has played, particularly the season. I mean, it's always been a presence on the show, but it feels like it really came to, it feels like it came maybe not out of the background or the subtext necessarily, but still from the shadows and really took center stage this season in a way that it perhaps perhaps was not fully taking center stage in previous seasons. And so I thought it might be fertile ground for us just to explore this uh, seventh housewife in the mix and see where it takes us. Great. Do you think that the use of it became bigger or the editing showed 
more of it storyline wise. My theory about this, honestly, is that Bethany's exit cleared space energetically in the ensemble. I think before Bethany left, she was occupying so much of the space in the show. And I think there's a way the other women were both afraid of her and also resented her and also deferred to her. And I think there's something about her exiting the series that suddenly created more space for the other women to bring themselves more fully. And I think by virtue of bringing themselves more fully, we were seeing their relationship to alcohol more clearly just because they were more visible in the space of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I, I think it's always been there was my feeling. Um, and I, I just wondered if um, the, what you're saying in terms of their relationship and what got aired, like when it was being filmed or what was filmed and then what eventually got aired um, maybe because Bethany's presence wasn't sort of guiding the narrative or, you know, creating the storyline, their personalities sort of came out a little bit more. You know, they were with each other more drunkenly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Since I've started kind of being out there as someone who channels information about the housewives, I do hear from people who work on these shows who, you know, run to me with little tidbits of information. And one thing that I have gathered is that, like, literally, um, the women of New York, when Bethany was on, let's say that there was an event you know, whether they were filming, uh, the women would actually wait before getting into the meat of a scene until Bethany arrived because they were so cognizant of the fact that Bethany was an unofficial star of the show and they didn't really want to get into anything until Bethany was actually there. So I just think that alone really shows kind of a hold that she had on the show. And I do think she was driving the narrative. And I think that unofficially they were all kind of you know, subjugated to her presence. And I feel like you take her out. It reminds me of Beverly Hills too. You know, you take out Lisa Vanderpump. It was shocking to me how I really saw Kyle in a whole new light. Not that I never noticed before Kyle's machinations and her willingness to play the producer. But I will say, I think that Lisa Vanderpump so heavily occupied that unofficial producer role that when you took her away it suddenly became glaringly obvious to me how much Kyle really has in common with Lisa Vanderpump after all. So I do think there's something to be said for you remove these kind of North stars out of the constellation. And I do think the other stars reorganize and glow a little bit brighter. And I think in the case of New York city, glowing a little bit brighter means let's spotlight the, the alcohol consumption. Lit. (laughs) They got lit. So let me ask you, who are you most drawn to of the ensemble in terms of the alcohol conversation? Well, Dorinda Medley. I mean, I'm no AA person, um, but I think she has a clear problem personally. You know, it's kind of hard to say because I don't live with her or anything like that. But I mean, the amount, I, I, what do they say with AA? Like if it's a problem, you know, like, and you can't admit it, then it's a real problem. Uh, the last episode that I watched of the reunion where Andy was basically just trying to ask her if she had any regrets based on alcohol. And she just 
the deflection and the constant like pointing to the other women, it was insane. Like I was like, wow, this is a really touchy subject for her. So I don't know if she's an alcoholic, but I would say that um, the way that she's portrayed on this, um, this season, for sure, it was sloppy. And the fact that she doesn't seem to have regret is, I don't know, it's concerning. Her personality just really, I don't, I don't think it takes a shift necessarily, but she gets cruel. She does get cruel. And she's always been cruel. I mean, I've been very vocal that I've actually always been very uncomfortable with Dorinda on the show. She's never seemed totally mentally and emotionally well to me. And she's one of those people, much like Kelly Caloran Ben-Simone, I would also say Kelly Dodd, where I look at them and I'm just, for me, I, I don't get pleasure out of watching them. I never have gotten pleasure out of watching them on my TV because I just have the sense this woman, she's not all there. And this isn't good for her. And it's hard for me to take pleasure in watching her be unwell on my television. I do mm-hmm. think that Dorinda, I think she's gotten a lot of um, leeway because, well, you know, she is funny. She's got a dynamic personality. She also has a lot of heart and she does have a lot of love in her heart. Um, so I think a lot of people have been drawn to that and have been willing to overlook these glaring examples of her cruelty. I mean, true cruelty, but it's always been there. It just feels like this season it's skewed so far. The pendulum swung so far in the direction of the cruelty that people finally were unable to um, or unwilling to overlook it. Well, and it, it, it becomes hard to see her heart. I mean, I think that's the point was, like you said, her heart is very big, but it feels broken. It feels like she has a broken heart and she's so unwilling to feel the pain that she just, she either masks it, I think, with alcohol and then gets very um, boisterous and, and that cruelty comes out because I think that's how much she's hurting. That's the way it felt to me. And that's why I was always uncomfortable watching her because to me, even when she was in her heart in previous seasons, it always felt like the other side of the coin of her cruelty in the sense that it was just almost so delirious everything was always all or nothing with her emotionally so it's like i'm thinking now i remember some season where she got drunk and i think she spoke uh in a disparaging way of bethany's business and bethany got really upset and hurt by that and then the next morning dorinda just like laid it on so thick it was just like oh you know i would never do that i love you so much it's this it's it's like you're either a villain in her eyes or you're a saint in her eyes and it's like there's no room for certainly there's no room for complexity there's no room for nuance it truly is this you're either on a pedestal or you're the scum of the earth and so for me even when she was in a loving place it always just felt so kind of um she just felt as deeply blinded by her love for someone as she felt deeply blinded by her rage towards someone so to me all of it just felt like nonsense it's like i don't even trust the loving things you're saying right now it's like even her relationship to leah this season it's like do you truly love leah this much or are you just colluding against ramona it really felt like their bond was about 
I hate Ramona so much right now that anyone I can kind of get on board this train and band against Ramona with is someone who I'm going to just raise up as this amazingly respectful, amazing wife and mother. But the truth is, if Dorinda had stayed on the show and Leah had returned and you know was there long enough, at some point... That rage is going to get directed towards Leah. There's no rhyme or reason to her love or to her anger. So I think for me in watching the show in seasons past, even when Dorinda was in that loving, warm place, it still just made me uncomfortable because I was like, there's no consistency to this. It's just she's almost like a wild hose spraying water everywhere. And it's just like you never really know where it's going to land or what setting it's going to be on. She doesn't feel grounded in any kind of emotion. Like when I say emotional reality, she doesn't feel grounded in her own emotional reality of like what she actually feels about anything. It just feels like everyone's sort of a projection for wherever her reactivity might lie in a given moment. Yeah. When I think about her, I, you know, I think about like working with her, for instance, I would just like, I would want to support her just to like, sit still, you know, to literally be able to just be in her own experience because the charge her, her, and like energetically, it feels like a constant drive, a constant driving, forcing current away from pain. And until she actually feels her pain, like really deeply touches into it, she's always going to be moving, either causing pain for other people or avoiding her own and like taking out whatever is in her path. It just, it's, it's like, it feels like a runaway train where she's just constantly trying to move away from something. So even when she's being generous, even when she's, mm-hmm. you know, like off making it nice, doing her thing, it's, it comes with such a forcing current. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, respond like and match that sort of um i'm receiving you it's like you're toast you're you know like she will take you out if you're not appreciative of something or if you don't take in what she's doing the way it feels to me it's just that really strong forcing current that's constantly moving away from something that's true yeah, and the make it nice is a perfect example, right? Because it's like there she is in the spirit of love and generosity, but then there's this price you pay on the other side. It's exactly what you're saying. As soon as like the the switch gets flipped or you're not behaving in a way that feels good and right to her, suddenly you're paying the price for her making it nice because she's letting you know, I made it nice. And basically, there were conditions attached to me making it nice. And now you're going to pay for not behaving in the way that I wanted you to behave as a result of me making it nice. So it does beg the question, like, were you ever really making it nice if this was all just kind of a vehicle for, as you said, this sort of forceful current inside you that refuses to stop for any moment and simply feel? And I think even beyond that, that's part of what's been so uncomfortable with me um, for me over the years. She is someone, and Luann can be similar in this regard, who the second she walks into a room, if you watch her in the scenes, she cannot stop talking. I mean, like, I'm thinking now about going to Leah's Married to the Mob party and just how many times she had to tell everyone about, oh, this is like a cool downtown vibe. Like, oh, this is different for me. It's like every single person who walked in, she had to comment on the party and the fact that it was downtown and it's a different kind of setting. And you can just sort of feel this unsettled jump Mexican jumping bean energy that just can't sit still in her. And so for me, it always it always triggered just an underlying sense of discomfort and unrest of this woman 
cannot sit still. And everything she's doing is coming from this furnace of just got to stay in motion, got to stay in motion, got to stay in motion. And again, not being grounded in any kind of true emotional reality for herself. Yeah. And I think when you do see her like relax or kind of kick back, it is to have a good time. Like she seems like she is so much fun, like to have at a party, to be at a party. She's until she kind of tips the, the scale when it comes to alcohol and the cruelty comes out, she's actually, she's always doing something really fun. You know, she seems like she really um, strives to have a good time. But for me, like theme parties, for instance, Mm -hmm. like that's my biggest nightmare. Like having to go to a theme party. I'm just not one of those people because it feels like I've got to show up as something or for something that is other than just true connection. And it's, it's like, again, that, that forcing current that I, that we were talking about, it's like, it, you can't even just show up and just have a good time. It's got to be, we're having a good time as pumpkins or Santa's. It's like, come on, settle down, just relax. And I don't ever see her or they, it's just not really shown where she's actually having conversations where she's taking people in. She's always trying to convince them of something else or telling them what they're doing wrong or trying to fix something for somebody else. It's like, I wonder what it would be like if she could just like, I'm hurting, you know, like uh, I haven't let go of my husband yet or whatever her thing is. I, I don't even know her, her whole history, but I, you know, they mention her husband all the time. Well, I do think it's interesting, though, that you bring up the forceful current of energy and the unwillingness to feel her pain because I, I, I have dropped in to Dorinda in relationship to alcohol and really what it does feel to me like on just a really fundamental level is this um, is this voice that says I absolutely will not feel. And when I drop into that statement for her, um, it feels connected to this image or idea of if I stop or stand still long enough to feel some of this pain, it's almost like the pain is so big and so huge, it is going to overwhelm me. Like, I think that there's an unconscious place inside of her. Maybe it's even conscious that really thinks, like, if I let myself feel this pain for even an inch, it's like, it's almost like there's a mind's image that it's just going to be this overwhelming avalanche that's going to take her down. She won't be able to survive it. And even as I'm saying this, I can feel the guttural scream that wants to move through oh. her. And it, it, and I think part of her, yeah, her journey and her healing, I would imagine, um, would be kind of the understanding that, well, one, that she could modulate her experience of her own pain and take, you know, initial steps towards letting it through rather than again, it being this all or nothing thing. But two, even when she gets to that point where she does feel more comfortable letting it through, that it's not actually going to kill her and that she is actually a strong power. The reason why she has these big, powerful emotions is because she's actually a strong, powerful woman who can handle these feelings. But I do feel this this belief in her that's just like if I let this through even an inch it's going to take me down and that she then kind of goes to the bottle as part of the way that she just keeps herself like locked in loops locked in loops let me keep going let me keep going like I can't stand still long enough to feel any of this or it will completely take me down 
Yeah, as we're talking about the current, you know, it's kind of like this, you know, this this forcing stream that's finding its way into the ocean. And like when you said it's so overwhelming because it's going to open her up to that ocean of of pain. And it's like, but if you just ride that through and then turn over and you're on your back and you're, you know, looking up at the sky and you're being held by that ocean, it's like, it's a, it's a collective force that you can just relax into as opposed to um, constantly avoiding it or, or moving away from that. Because I have this sense with her really that if she could just surrender because her vulnerability, I think that's the the place that she's just not willing to go. Mm -hmm. If for whatever reason, and I, when I think about her energetically, like as, as you said, drop in, I see her as somebody that's always been striving to be better, to be better, to be better. And the idea of like, centering just coming back and then feeling your connection to humanity like deeply feeling that connection it brings you down you know like sort of down and I think there's something about this heart-to-heart connection that is so hard for her to feel because the it requires a vulnerability Mm -hmm. that I just don't know if she's allowed really for herself yeah, it's like as you say that, when you talk about the heart-to-heart connection, what I felt so strongly is it's intolerable for her. It feels intolerable. And it's interesting. What I also felt that I've never really um, felt before for her was this possibility um, of Dorinda as someone who herself is incredibly sensitive to the people around her, the world around her. You know, it makes sense because she does have such strong currents of feeling and um I do wonder, like, Dorinda, do you have really strong empathic ability and resource? And maybe part of this is that if she were more deeply connected to herself, um, she would also be more deeply connected to the feelings of the collective. And maybe on some level that feels overwhelming to her. And and in the place where something in her, in the place where her sensitivity got missed in some way earlier in life, it's kind of like she then wants to reject her own sensitivity. It's just, you know, in this place where in some way I want to say the voice I hear, it's like, it's not safe for me to have this sensitivity. This isn't something that was nurtured, supported, or even recognized in me when I was young. So hell no, am I going to open this up and feel stuff for the world? Hell no, am I going to have heart to heart connections with people? No one was there for me. This isn't safe. These feelings are huge. I'm not doing any of this, but kind of like what you're saying, when I, when I articulate those statements, there's such a deep level of suffering there. And she thinks she's protecting herself on some level, but really she's destroying and damaging herself because she's resisting, you know, if we trust the information that's coming through, she's rejecting the possible truth of who she actually is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about betrayal, you know, like, just kind of feeling into her, there's a way that I'm curious about how she has experienced betrayal, like ultimately her husband dying, like life has betrayed her in some way. But I'm curious if early on she was triangulated in some way. um, And then there was some sort of betrayal because there's always that 
connecting piece is around some sort of triangulation. Mm-hmm. She's constantly doing that. So always. I'm just feeling that. It's so true that she's always triangulating. Oh, and I want to say, you know, for anyone who might be listening to this, who's not familiar with the term triangulation, that just refers to basically the tendency to collude. So like I mentioned before, Dorinda loves to collude against Ramona with Leah. Uh, whenever she's mad at someone, she likes to gather people together and to have uh, uh, either two of them or a group of them against one person. And then there's that sort of deep charge around all of them, um, all finding issue with one particular target. And I think, you know, it's funny because before you just said what you said, it never even occurred to me that the flavor of some of her early wounding or some of her early experiences would have specifically been around getting caught up in triangulation. Uh, But it just makes so much sense when you say it because the flavor of that pattern is just so strong in her from season to season to season. It's always us against them, always with her. One of the things that I love to do is listen to what they're saying when they're in conflict. And I I imagine how old they are, (laughs) you know, and when you listen to Dorinda, the type of things that she says are so young. They're so immature. It's, it's, I mean, it's like middle school. And I just wonder about maybe how early on this type of behavior started with friends. And there's, there's a deep insecurity there, like a, like opposed to maybe somebody like um, Leah. Yeah, like Leah seems like somebody that is so deeply grounded in who she is and really knows herself. And she is unapologetic for um, who she is, but she's the first person to apologize if she's actually hurt someone. You know, it's never an intention that she has to actually hurt someone. And with Dorinda... She refuses, like refuses to take ownership of the fact that people are telling her that she has an impact on them that is painful. Yeah. And it's hurtful. And it's so interesting because as you were saying that the question that floated through my mind is, you know, what would it mean for Dorinda if she were actually willing to drop in And, you know, simply be open to taking responsibility for her actions or to feel the impact she has on others. And then as soon as I pose that question, it brings me right back around to what we were exploring a little bit earlier of, oh, my God, if she has to take in the impact she has on other people, not only is she going to be feeling them more deeply, but then she also has to feel herself more deeply. And she has to feel herself more deeply in this place where she feels other people. Um, and so it does feel very much like just another protective mechanism from ever having to sit still and sort of truly drop in to the truth of her own sensitivity, to the truth of her own vulnerability, to the truth of her own feeling. Well, look at the projection. I mean, she is like the projection queen. Oh yeah. You know, she's just constantly, if, if she's asked a question, she answers the question with what somebody else is thinking or feeling. (laughs) So she identifies constantly her 
sort of what she's trying to say by telling you about what's wrong with you. And the thing that's so interesting to me about her, I mean, I know a lot of people, myself included, actually talk a lot about the effect of uh, the unresolved grief over her dead husband, Richard. But I do always feel like, you know, the issues that we're seeing play out in the screen have to predate this marriage, right? Because, yes, you can certainly um, pay an emotional price for unexpressed and unresolved grief, but at the same time, you if you choose to respond to a loss in a certain way, that means there was already something predisposed in you to have a relationship to disown feeling, to disown grief, to disown anger. And I think the thing about Dorinda that's so intriguing to me, and I don't know if this connects directly to what we've already been exploring, but what I find so interesting about her, and actually I would say most of the New York women in general, is that I feel like they hover on this really, really, really interesting line where there's a way in which they are truly old school. Like in the sense of Dorinda to me, Dorinda to me seems like a really powerful woman who I never forget the fact that she grew up in the Berkshires. I mean, by her description, it sounds like she was like a working class, you know, a working class family. And she saw bluestone manor right where she currently lives and she had this vision of one day owning and living in that house and the fact that she actually manifested that vision to me i'm always just like this woman she's a powerful woman she's a powerful manifester and yet she's also someone who's still of a generation where she basically i believe i'm not wrong about this like i don't know a ton of her history but from what i've seen on the show she basically married into her wealth and she married into her money and it's not like she necessarily created her life of her own you know volition in a way or her own you know her own business or her own resources it's like she really relied on um you know marriages that facilitated her her entry into a certain echelon of new york society and so she's kind of in a way a very sort of older generation of woman but at the same time she is really powerful she's really strong she's really outspoken you know these women have like unapologetic sexuality so i i do find that line that Dorinda, Luann, Sonia all walk. And I get curious for someone like Dorinda in the place where she has so much rage and so much unexpressed feeling, how much of this is connected to a possible experience of there are ways in which I sold myself out in order to get this life that I wanted to have for myself? And what kind of toll am I, am I paying now for that? Well, and that certainly gets sort of explored a bit with her obsession around Tinsley and mm-hmm. Scott, right? Like she, I I don't really, I didn't know anything about Dorinda's, you know, way into money or anything like that. I had no idea how she um, found her way there, but um, I know she has a lot of it. And I think with Tinsley, her criticism is that she's relying on a man for her money when Tinsley has her own money. Like I, I, I don't understand like what she's talking about there, but because she's so, she kept saying that in the reunion, like about being a woman who's not 
dependent upon a man. And I'm thinking to myself, huh, that's so interesting that she's all over that when Tinsley clearly isn't with Scott for, I mean, I don't know if she's with him for his money or not, but that doesn't seem to be the driving, the driving force or the need because she, in her own right, I, from what I understand is very wealthy. Yeah, no, Tinsley has her own money. And it is so interesting, Dorinda going on and on about, you know, I don't need to rely on a man for money. But the only reason you're in that position, I believe, is because you're living off prior husband's money that was left to you. I mean, I, we've never heard Dorinda mention anything about work or career. I mean, we know Ramona created her own successful business. Now, do I think Mario brought in a lot in terms of assets and money as well? Yes, but we know exactly what Ramona did. We know how she built it. We know the same thing with Leah, same thing with Bethany. We have not heard anything from Dorinda about like the business she created, the way she accumulated her wealth. My understanding is that that all came from men, which, by the way, God bless her, you know, more power to her. None of this is set in judgment. But I think, um, yeah, I would agree with you that the flavor of her charge around Tinsley seems like it's revealing, um, you know, a charge that lives within her. And it does make me even more curious about this possibility of, like, does Dorinda have a lot of unexpressed rage about the choices she felt she had to make, either consciously or unconsciously, to create the life that she wanted to create for herself, especially someone like her? who is so strong and so powerful and has such um, a voice. You know, I wonder if there are choices that she's made. AKA, by the way, like we've seen her do it even in a position of privilege and wealth. She made certain choices in terms of her relationship with John where you're, you're watching her betray herself in some way. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm making the assumption that she wasn't completely 100% um, thrilled about this relationship with this man who by all accounts seems at the very least dishonest uh kind of sketchy um so we're sort of seeing her even in present day circumstances betray herself and i do always get curious about you know to what extent has she felt like she's betrayed herself throughout her life and how much of that's playing into this disowned rage her level of power that she has to manifest what could you imagine her doing in the world? Like if she was on a path where she was actually using her power to support others, her generosity, she's clearly a very generous person. Um, She has the power to really affect people. I could just imagine her being like a major source of fundraising for really like good, good causes. I was literally, well, two things came to me. And one of them, I was literally about to say, like, yeah, I really saw her doing, like, major philanthropic work. Uh, the other thing that I saw immediately that jumped in when you posed that question actually was some sort of um, really powerhouse, um, I, I want to say, like, party planner, event thrower, caterer. Um, totally. Yeah, that part of her that likes to make it nice, throw parties. Not pretentious, though, like boisterous, fun, um, you know, life of the party parties, you know. Um, that's, that's, that kind of came into me. And then, yeah, the follow-up thing to that is from that place of success and from that place of manifestation and from that place of being very well-connected in, you know, New York society, um, just 
major powerhouse uh, philanthropy and the ability to kind of make connections to raise money. And I actually, what I feel for her, as I say that too, is causes that support women, like really supporting other women. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think if she could drop into a deeper sense of her purpose, like really be able to sit with herself a little bit longer, move whatever is in the way of her actually being able to feel herself completely. Once she did that, that can, cause she has such an ability to, I think, be a connector and be somebody who, like you said, I could just imagine her doing some really powerful connecting, <laughs> like connecting other people together for a greater cause. Um, and it could be super fun and she would have a really good time. Really enjoy it. It reminds me of her aerobics classes, you know, the fun and the spirit of those aerobics classes she gives, you know, bringing that same sort of fun and spirit to these events and to the fundraising. I mean, I feel this huge capacity for joy in her and I just keep seeing rainbows and color. Um, it just feels so celebratory. Um, and, and, you know, I think part of having a huge, deep capacity for joy is also having a huge, deep capacity for the grief in the world and the sorrow and just the willingness to have it all, um, and to understand that it's okay and that it also can be modulated. Um, and I think too, what's interesting to me about all this as we're speaking, I'm always aware that Dorinda, and I have to say on some level, I actually respect this about her, um, she is one of the few housewives who truly never took a stab at a business on the show. Like there's no, I mean, she sometimes merchandises her sayings on t-shirts. I think that's the extent of it, but there's never been a skinny girl, tipsy girl clothing line going into, you know, century 21. Mm -hmm. There's never been like a wine. Um, She's never once kind of come out of the gate with an entrepreneurial uh, platform on the show. So I find that interesting. Why do you think she's on it? That is a great question. I'm dropping into it for a moment. I mean, honestly, the first thing I heard was something connected to what we've been exploring around this um, idea of not ever wanting to stop. You know, I mean, there's a current to the being on The Real Housewives. It is, it is a full-time job that never ends because you're either shooting or you're watching the episodes and then caught up in the tidal wave of everything that's creating, you know? And then as soon as it's over, about a month later, you're back to shooting. So it really sort of occupies a huge amount of real estate in their lives. Um, and I and I can feel it. I can feel the kind of addictive, compulsive whirlwind it can create for someone. And the awareness of probably I should be getting out of this sometime soon, but also not wanting to get out of it anytime soon. So I definitely think it helps her to keep moving um, at all costs without ever stopping. But I want to drop in and see if I'm hearing anything else. I think it also does appeal to the part of her that um, wants to create something for herself. You know, I mean, this is Mm -hmm. a chance for her to be shining in her own right. It is a chance for her to be in the spotlight. You know, if she previously was the wife of powerful, wealthy men, this is sort of a chance for her to step into something of her own. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing. I, I, that's what I feel. It's like a way to be seen 
in her own right, like you said. But isn't it interesting that even here, she doesn't really have a true connection to the the purpose of how she would want to be seen. I can feel her even in the show in some way, as powerful as she is, playing small right. comparatively. It's interesting. It's true. When I was dropping in, it felt a little passive. You know, it felt so like... That's a great word. Yeah, I, I, what I did was I kind of dropped into her and just sort of saw the other women. And then I saw the logo of the Housewives of New York City. And it was almost like I felt a little bit removed from it. And um, it's interesting because even if you think about someone like Tinsley, who also, you know, didn't really create a business with Tinsley, you really understood, no, I'm using this as a way to get myself back into New York society, ideally using this as a lily pad to finding a man, kind of getting my groove back. And I feel like Tinsley actually succeeded in doing that. Whereas Mm -hmm. with Dorinda, it really does seem like there's not even a pretense of using the show as a platform towards something greater. (laughs) The ultimate passive aggressive. (laughs) You know, she's so passive aggressive. And it's like, here it is, you know, like even her her way on the show has that sort of, it's such a huge charge. It's such a forcing current. And yet the, the passivity is her full self is not in there. It's only a portion of her. And like we were talking about, I think the part of her that she is disconnected from in her own self, that's always going to be the, the thing for her until she can actually drop in and feel it all. Well, that's what I was about to say. Yeah, to me, it's such a metaphor for the way in which she's not fully grounded in her own self. Like, there's a way that she's not fully grounded in this experience. It's like she's just sort of letting it take her somewhere. And it almost feels like there's no reflection on her part about what this experience means on a deeper level or what even her intention is with it. It's like, current, take me away and let's just keep it moving. It's so sad because for me, I always just feel this kind of broken heart and there's so much potential there. You know, it's such a, it's such a big heart. It feels so generous and with such a capacity, like you were saying to feel and um, whatever has been sort of cracked in there or broken. It's like, it's so crusty, but underneath it, there's so much softness that if it just could ooze out a little bit and create some sort of salve for the crack, it it would really, it would really help her. I'm curious about like, do you know anything about her relationship with her daughter? Her daughter's on it from time to time. And I got that. I mean, they clearly love each other a lot, but there's some sort of edge. I was interested in what, what you know about that. I don't know anything. I know that I feel very uncomfortable when her daughter is on the show. Um, you know, there was that scene recently where they were in a diner together and, you know, her daughter Hannah was basically telling her, I forget the specifics of it, but, oh, you know, these are all the reasons why I respect you and I look up to you. And then Dorinda started crying and I just, it, it made me so deeply uncomfortable because the one thing that I do know or the one thing that I feel confident in saying, I mean, these sides of Dorinda that we see on the show in front of the camera, the reactive rage, 
the finger pointing. I'm just like, there's no way in hell you're going to tell me that Hannah hasn't been on the receiving end of this throughout her life. Oh, totally. And just seeing the way that Hannah, it, it just felt like there was a way that she was really enabling Dorinda in that. I'm not saying that Hannah doesn't believe the things that she was saying, but it just felt like she was truly feeding into Dorinda's emotional narratives um, you know, it felt like Dorinda, when Hannah was kind of reflecting back how much she respected and admired her and Dorinda was crying, you know, you could kind of feel the wheels of victimization turning in Dorinda's mind of like, yes, that's right. I'm just trying my hardest. I, you know, I'm just trying to hold it all together. This is who I am. This is what I do. And to see how comfortably and easily her daughter slipped into that narrative I felt like we were kind of getting a glimpse of the underlying pattern of, you know, Hannah knows how to tiptoe around Dorinda's moods and emotions. And I, I wonder to what degree Hannah's even aware that um, she's likely been on the receiving end of behavior that's not um, appropriate. Hopefully she's been in therapy. <laughs> you know, she, I, it's it's clear that that's a learned, that was a learned behavior. I, I really noted that scene as well. And there was another one in their apartment when she was doing something and there was some sort of banter, some teasing going on. And it was very quickly, you can, you can tell like she knows how to, uh, okay, I'm, I'm out. I'm leaving now. Like this is, this is all I can tolerate. It reminds me of people that um, I've worked with before that have parents that are extremely narcissistic, you know, where they've learned my parent is never going to actually see me and attune to me. Therefore, my job is to attune to them and make sure that they are okay. And if they're okay, I'm okay. I mean, I hope that Hannah has that awareness because honestly, I can imagine how confusing it could be to have a mother like Dorinda because there is so much love and she does make things so nice and there is that spirit of generosity. So I can imagine, yeah, if that's what you've known growing up, it could be very confusing to have a mother who loves you so much and creates such a sense of heart and hearth and home, but then at the same time makes you pay dearly for it. And uh that that definitely would be, um, you know, that'd be a lot to work through. So my hope for her is that she is doing that work and that she does has she has consciousness around the fact that you know Dorinda is very much lost in her own kind of emotional hall of mirrors, and that it's ultimately not Hannah's responsibility to, um, you know, to make things nice for Dorinda. Essentially, I wonder if Bravo makes it mandatory to have the that some sort of therapeutic process to be on the show, you know, I think it would be good for them to reflect on what they're seeing. Cause I mean, imagine being filmed like that and then not knowing what gets aired and then seeing yourself that way. I, I like, I was watching Dorinda in the, um, well, I was watching all the women really in the reunion, watching the scenes and you're like, they're laughing at these like moments that were painful for me to watch as a viewer. And if it were me seeing myself, like, you know, Sonia, like falling for the third or fourth time out of her own chair and laughing about it, it's almost like I would be so worried for myself. <laughs> and I just, I'm curious if they, um, if they go into some sort of reflective with support mode and say okay this is how i'm being shown this is actually me being filmed at a party 
or with my friends, and this is me. I don't think so. I mean, I think if they were actually reflecting with support, we'd see more change in them. Um, That's true. And I feel like the, my my ultimate fantasy, what I would love to do with one of these shows, is after a reunion wraps, do a five-day workshop with an entire cast oh. where we just oh. we dismantle what happened for them over the season and we just get into it. I just think that that would be so fascinating to like get in there and do the real work of yeah like what did the season and the storylines that play out and, and the way that you were represented on the show what's it reflecting in in your journey as an individual and as a collective and then actually you know support them to hopefully um certainly find deeper self-understanding make some change and then from there you know see what happens next season you know because then the drama is going to change and i feel like you know i know people really love new york i think i love it less than a lot of other people specifically because it does start feeling really uh repetitive to me i just feel like we watch the same story play out over and over it's why i'm i mean i think a lot of people are happy dorinda's gone but you know personally i'm happy dorinda's gone because i just feel like we've we've seen we know what we get with dorinda <laughs> she's not you know the the groove isn't the, the the needle is not jumping the groove we're in the same groove over and over and over and i think um ultimately if they could start developing some consciousness, it would actually, I think, help keep these shows fresher. I agree. And, you know, that's I, I'm a big fan of Leah's. Um, and I think part of it is because there was a way that she was able to be in these conflicts with these women that felt so, um, I guess, supportive you know, like I, I think underneath her deepest desire was to have like a good connection with these women and it showed. And I think she was able to stand for herself in a way that even with Ramona, she, Ramona was like, oh yeah, I see you like my daughter, you know, it's like, okay, you're not my mom, but I have some maternal thing with you as well. There's a way that she would name things, I guess, that I think would be very beneficial, but I'm all about that. You should definitely. <laughs> Can you catch imagine? That, idea. that would be so awesome because then I actually might feel a little bit better about myself watching the show because it would be a platform for people to actually get somewhere. I want to circle back around to Leah. I, I'm interested oh, yeah. to touch down on Leah a bit because I, I want to say I, I do like Leah. Um, I enjoy her. I think she'd actually be someone who'd be great to know in real life. I also find myself being very tough on her when I watch her. And I have to say, I actually found myself much more triggered by Leah in the Ramona conflict than I was triggered by Ramona. And so I'm curious on your take, since you seem to be skewing more towards Leah's side of things. I just kind of felt like, I feel like Leah accused Ramona of gaslighting her. And yet Leah was actually the one who was gaslighting Ramona in the sense that, um, you know, first of all, Ramona is who she is. You know, she's this woman, she's in her early sixties. She's conservative. She's a little cuckoo. And Ramona did specifically go out of her way to ask Leah, Hey, I'm inviting you to my birthday party. Like, please, this is what's important to me. Like behave in a certain way. And Leah at the birthday party clearly pissed with Ramona. So this wasn't like an innocent, you know, flub. It wasn't some unconscious choice that she made. She was pissed with Ramona at the birthday party. And I felt like made a very conscious decision 
to behave in a way that she knew was going to provoke Ramona and piss Ramona off. And then Ramona did get pissed off. And literally, Leah turns around and says, you're psychotic. Which, to me, this is the definition of gaslighting. It's like purposely provoking a reaction in someone and then holding that reaction against them when they have the reaction. And when Ramona literally sort of brought this to her and said, hey, this hurt me. I didn't like this. Leah took no responsibility for it whatsoever. And instead really kind of got on this high horse about Ramona bringing out the bipolar thing, which don't get me wrong. I'm not, (laughs) I'm not saying that Ramona um, wasn't, you know, getting her hands a little bit dirty with that, you know, with that little stunt, but still I just felt like if I were working with Leah, I would definitely be wanting her to take some ownership of the way that she created that situation and I just felt ultimately like there was so much projection on Leah's part of like desperately wanting Ramona to approve of her, like desperately wanting Ramona to approve of her. And I, I did kind of feel bad for Ramona by the end where I'm just like, Leah, take, like Leah, she's not your mother. Like leave her alone. She doesn't need to approve of you. Like what is this demand you have on this woman to accept you unconditionally? That is definitely a, a fair assessment for sure. It's, my my question for Leah would be, why are you going to a party where somebody's telling you how to behave? Mm. First of all, she's a grown ass woman, and Ramona, why are you in? Okay, invite Leah. But if somebody misbehaves at a party, it's the person; it's not you. So, don't invite people that potentially have that uh, proclivity to behave that way, or. It, to me, it's so controlling to, in, Jamie, you're invited to my party, but if you wear that polo, I'm so sorry. I'm just going to be so offended and I can't have it. I hear what you're saying. And yet what I want to counter, though, is Leah's behavior at that Newport dinner. Do you not feel like to me, if I had been at that dinner, first of all, I mean, speaking to your point, I would have left that dinner if Leah had been behaving that way. I found her behavior so and and this is, yes, this is a show I know where the women act out, they get outrageous, but there was something for me, and maybe maybe this is it, maybe I'm triggered in the same way that Ramona is triggered. There was something about that display that just felt so over the top, so invasive of the other woman's personal space. And I think the thing that also bothered me about it, too was the fact that the next day Leah was saying something like, look, I was just in a really difficult place and this was just how I worked out my inner demons. And if I had been there, I would have been like, okay, but Leah, you imposed your inner demons on me. Like, why do I have to carry the brunt of your inner demons? Um, I felt, once again, it was kind of a space where I, I do like that Leah doesn't want to apologize for who she is, but sometimes I think that she takes that lack of apology a little bit too far. And if she had behaved that way at a dinner I'd attended... I could see maybe saying to her, hey, look, I want to include you in my birthday plans, but it's important to me as the birthday boy that we're not going to have another repeat performance of the stunt you pulled in Newport Beach. I think it's Newport Beach. Newport, No, that's L.A. Newport, Rhode Island. <laughs> um, you know, so can you kind of make sure you keep it under rain? Yeah. I mean, look, I have, I have in my family people that are over the top. And I just know who, who they are. And if I'm going to invite people that I think are going to be offended by that, 
Um, I think I might have a, a lot of room for people that behave that way. Um, just because I grew up with it and it doesn't, I don't get offended by it. what I saw. It was over the top for sure, but I thought it escalated because she was being told to shut it down. Once she was being told to stop doing whatever it was that she was doing that was inappropriate. I think that this would be complexity right here, in my opinion, like, Leah's behavior is a way that she behaves all the time. Like that's just who she is. She's, she's at a party. Maybe she's highly sexual. Maybe she's really comfortable with her body. She's totally fine. Humping tables, whatever. That's just (laughs) who she is. So if I know that about her and I'm going to be throwing a party where people are going to be offended by that, I might not include her. And then if she's wondering why I'm not including her, I would tell her, look, I'm not including you because I don't, your behavior is erratic and it's, but I'm not going to tell somebody to do something that I'm not their mom. I don't even tell my kids to behave that way. But here, okay. You're helping me get so clear on something. There's two things I want to say. So, um, the first is though, if you said to Leah or if Ramona said to Leah, I'm not including you because your behavior is erratic. Leah is not someone who would simply like receive that information and say, okay, this person's drawing a boundary for themselves. I mean, we saw how she responds to Ramona's um, sort of lack of approval. I mean, there is such a charge around it. And she became kind of, I almost felt obsessed with constantly wanting to sort of prove Ramona wrong in situation after situation mm-hmm. after situation. So I do feel like there's a bit of a setup here with Leah where it's sort of like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, which leads me to my other point about Leah. I just pinpointed why I get triggered by her behavior at Newport or by, you know, the behavior at the birthday party. And it's this. And this is what I think the fundamental difference is between her acting out and maybe some of the other women acting out, I feel an unspoken demand from Leah in her behavior. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like there's this voice in her saying, this is who I am. Accept me. Accept me. Deal with it. You have to deal with it. It's that place in her that still wants to be seen and heard in a certain type of way, who wants to prove that she's okay. And I feel that energetic demand in her. And I think that's the place in me that like kind of bristles around this behavior and is like, look, get the fuck away from me with this. What if I, what if I don't want to accept you in this place? And I think that's why in some ways I relate to Ramona because it's like, I want to say to Leah, I have a right to say no. And if I say no, you can't hold that against me. I mean, obviously this is triggering something in me, right? Cause I'm getting charged, but I do understand. It just, it just. <laughs> She feels different to me than a Sonia acting out. She feels different to me than a Luann acting out. It feels like there's an undercurrent of true charge and demand to what she's doing. And it's like, you better be okay with this is what I'm hearing from her. And in that place, I'm like, wait, so you're not giving me a choice about whether I get to be okay with this or not. And I don't like that. And if I follow that voice in me, it's like, so fuck you, Leah. Fuck you. I want a choice. Yeah, so why why isn't your choice not to invite her? That's my question. Well, I mean, yeah, so I can make that choice. I mean, when you put it like that, it's like, absolutely, I can make that choice. And then if Leah continues to have energy around me, I can just stay rooted inside myself 
and not engage with however she's reacting. I think before we had this conversation, what I could sense in me, though, is if I drew that boundary and then that's going to hurt Leah because it will because this is sort of the drama. She's constantly acting out. It's like, accept me for all of who I am. And if you don't, you know, it's this deeply wounding thing. And then that's going to even bolster my need to, you know, to assert my right to be all of who I am. You know, it, it's this feeling of like, oh, my God, you're sucking me into this drama that I don't want to be a part of. And I think, you know, what I'm realizing in this moment is, yeah, it does sort of require, I think for me to be in relationship with Leah in that place, it requires me being deeply connected to my own sense of just a calm, clear boundary. And then if she wants to try to suck me into some drama around it, of course, I have the power and the resources to not engage with her in that way. But I do think there's something she does underneath the surface that's very provocative and that she she likes to tussle with people. And I don't think she owns it. I think that there's – talk about passive-aggressive. I think there's something very passive-aggressive in the way that she likes to tussle with people. And so I guess what I would say is, yes, we're ultimately all responsible for our choices. But I understand how and why this would be triggering to someone. Absolutely. I mean, for sure, there's a demand there. I'm not going to argue that at all. And I would say that some of it is unowned and some of it is owned. I do hear her saying, I know I'm like this. I know I'm hard. I'm, you know, she, she does actually own part of it. And as far as what I can tell, but what I do see is that it might challenge someone who does not want to hurt her like you said, like if Ramona doesn't want to hurt her by not inviting her, but the question, it just, it feels so much cleaner to me to be, to say something up top. Look, I love you to death. You're a great person. And I don't like it when people take their clothes off at parties. So I'm not going to invite you to this party. Like bottom line, it's not you. I don't like it's your behavior that I don't like when it comes to parties. I just can't try. I can't trust you. To me, it's such a clear message where if more people said that kind of shit to her, she might actually decide to look at what she's doing. Whereas I think because she's so, um, she's like that precocious kid that knows how to sort of warm things over. She's charming. She's, you know, she's got, she's like Jax in a, in a way, you know, she's got a little bit of that edge to her. I guess what I've always seen is she will admit certain things where I don't see the other women do it as often. So I think I I like that part of her. No, again, I want to say I like her. And I think you're absolutely right. Like, I think let's say I were on the show and I ended up tussling with her. I think at the end of the day, I could sit down with her and have a conversation like this and say, hey, Leah, I feel like there's this demand you're putting on me. You know, it backs me into a corner. I want to be able to have my boundaries with you. And I think she would really be able to hear that. So. I do want to reiterate, I'm aware I'm being tough on her because in terms of sort of willingness to look at herself in consciousness, she's leagues ahead of the other women. Um, I do think that it was sort of triggering something in me personally. Um, and I think, you know, in some ways, because I do like her, I'm probably holding her also to a higher and tougher standard. Whereas, you know, someone like Ramona, for some, for whatever reason, with someone like Ramona, I just feel very willing to let her be who she is. You know, I just, it's like Vicky. I just have a, so- a certain soft spot for some of these women where I'm just like, you are very limited. 
And you're trying in your own limited way. You're trying. And I totally accept you for who you are. Um, so, you know, you know, I own that bias in me. Um, I do think that with Leah in terms of alcohol, when I kind of feel into that for her, I think Leah to me is someone who does feel like she has a true wildness in her. And I feel like she probably learned early on, especially like seeing what we've seen of her mother, that her wildness or her wildness got labeled as something bad, something wrong. This is energy you're not supposed to, this is energy that you're not supposed to have. And so I feel like she, as a result, is at odds with her own wildness and has sort of learned there's something shameful about it. And so then it kind of feels like alcohol becomes her excuse to let the wildness through. And my feeling for her is that there's probably like a right relationship for the wildness, that the wildness actually is a great part of her energy and that there's probably a really constructive way that it can be harnessed and that there's probably a ton of wisdom in it. Um, but that like she hasn't fully let herself learn that yet because she doesn't fully understand that this isn't actually energy she has to avoid or resist or sort of tuck into the shadows of alcohol. Definitely. Cause I think that's destructive. You know, there's a way that her energy is slightly distorted, you know, the way that she brings it out there. I think maybe from the messaging that you're not okay there's a slight distortion with it. And so if she's going to then couple that with not taking responsibility for it by blaming it on alcohol, you know, it's like alcohol can be that friend that, Oh, my friend made me do it. So that's, there's a way that I think she uses or has used, it seems like alcohol to give her permission to go off the rails um, in a way that then she doesn't have to be accountable. Um, and also in a way that's defiant. It's like, see, like, this is who I am. It's just, it's like proving a point to mom. And yes. it reminds me of like early in the season, I forget the specifics, but I remember having there being this sense of Leah really wanting Tinsley to drink, you know, and really wanting Lady Morgan to drink. And it really sort of, you know, I remember her, um, you know, saying to Sonia, like, drop the Lady Morgan act, which I understand, you know, for a lot of people, that was a thrilling thing because it honestly is something that Sonia needs to hear. But I also kind of felt it again. There's just this sort of demand that Leah has of kind of like, mm-hmm. hey, I'm out here down here in the gutter doing wild things and you need to come with me. Like, I'm mm-hmm. taking you with me. Like, it just felt like there was something in her that was so invested in like Tinsley Mortimer you're like throwing off your well-to-do privileged rich girl thing. Like Sonia Morgan, you're throwing off the lady Morgan mantle. Like come down here and be real and wild with me. Um, It just feels so like I've got a point to prove. And if I get you guys to come down here with me, I've made my point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, her implication is you guys are fake. And until you're down here doing this thing with me, which also is sort of distorted and not completely uh, real, (laughs) let's be honest, it's, you know, that she may be tapping into some wildness, but it's like, if you're not going to get down and tussle with me, then I don't know if I can really trust you. So I, I hear it as kind of like, I hear the demand for sure. And what's interesting, even with Ramona, I think that there that's a place that, um, you know, how people 
kind of reflect that darkness in each other. Ramona also has this demand on her. It's a it's a total maternal relationship where Ramona's, you know, got this daughter that she's saying, you need to be better than this. They're they're totally playing it out. And she's saying, no, you need to accept me for who I am. And so they both have a demand on each other to be somebody for the other so that they're more comfortable. And, you know, that's ultimately one of the hardest parts about being in a relationship. Yeah. And it's like, as you're talking, what came to me just so succinctly and simply is, you know, Leah wants to be accepted for who she is, but is she truly willing to accept other people for who they are? You know, in this place where she has demands on others. And so like, that's what I'm always saying with my clients. It's like, you know, to me, this is like the, the kernel or the fundamental basis of the law of attraction. It's like, Leah, like if you're not willing to give what you want to receive, then you're not going to (laughs) receive what you want to receive. Like if you want people to accept you for who you are, accept them for who they are. Um, but if you're going to put demands on other people about who they have to be and how they have to see you, guess what? You're creating a reality where other people are going to put demands on, um, you know, how you see them and how you see yourself. And, um, it's like, you know, that's always the, uh, the sobering reality. It's, you know, this place where Leah just wants to scream at her mother, like, see me a certain way. It's like, well, actually Leah, like drop the demand, you know? Because mm-hmm. you're just perpetuating this reality where people don't accept each other for who they are. Mm-hmm. If she could just let people, because I think she she is actually pretty accepting of some things, but not if they aren't accepting her. Right. I think the one thing she has a hard time tolerating is the lack of acceptance. Oh, yeah. I mean, it takes her somewhere so deep. I mean, it just feels like she really had an experience of feeling judged in a real place of like essence, you know, the core of who she is and that there was just some message she received there around like parts of me are not okay. And I think because she does have such a strong heart and such a deep capacity for love, I think it really, really hurt her. And I think, you know, her job would just be the willingness to feel the pain, you know, the pain of heartbreak, the pain of rejection, but to also realize you can feel that pain of rejection without then going into a story that you being rejected means you're not worthy of love or that there's something wrong with you. Like to basically, I can feel the pain of rejection without making this personal. I just happen to have a conservative Irish mother who's uncomfortable with her own wildness. So she doesn't want to see my wildness, but it actually doesn't mean there's anything wrong with me. It hurts that she won't see me and accept me for all of who I am. But I don't have to go into a story about this, about my lack of worth. And if I don't go into a story about it, then it doesn't really matter if other people accept me for who I am because I'm in alignment with myself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that, that, that deeper self-acceptance then leaves room for other people to be a little tighter, a little less wild. And there's a deeper acceptance for the other because you don't need them to do what you can do for yourself. You know, and it's interesting because when I just heard you say that, I actually got this flash of, you know, what I would call Leah's higher self or essence. It's like I got this flash of, oh, what if Leah dropped the demand and she created space in her life? And I actually saw her as um, I got this image of her, you know, dancing wildly with her arms up in the air. And I, I was like, oh, you actually really are someone 
who can help people connect more to their wildness and more to like their free flowing energy. Like I feel that in you. The problem is you're not stepping into that because right now it's married to a demand that they show up in a certain way. But if you drop the demand and simply let there be space and simply offer this just as an offering because it's you and it's like what wants to move through you, but there's absolutely no demand that people have to like accept the offering. That's going to create the freedom and space for people to actually engage in this energy in a way that might really free something up in them. Exactly. And have its own expression. Wildness doesn't have to look like that. Wildness can look a lot of ways and you see it. They, they each have their, you know, their element of it and the demand to have it look like misbehaving is I think the place where she gets sort of caught up in, in talk about a forcing current, you know, like then it becomes, there's no room for somebody else to show their wildness in a different way. Yeah, and I think, but the good news here, though, I think it's awesome that Leah actually, it feels like she's actually quite close in a lot of ways to the truth of who she is. You know what I mean? Like, I I love that for her. I love that, you know, she's not far off in terms of wanting to help liberate people's sense of freedom and wildness. It's just right now, it's a little bit hampered with this place where she, yes, stays out of her own heartbreak and as a result sort of puts a demand on other people. So we'll see now that she's, she's on a sober journey now. She's in uh, 12-step recovery. So we'll see how this wants to play out. I think that is amazing for her because I think um, that will actually allow her to get closer to exactly what you're just talking about. I think there's so much potential for her. And she's already so close, you know, Yeah. like you said, she's, she seems like somebody who's very self-reflective and willing to admit mistakes and maybe just with this one little piece of focusing inward as opposed to the demand that the other make her <laughs> okay, she'll, she'll get it lined up. And yeah. I and I also think what's cool about twelve step is that it is a spiritual process, and you know I, I do feel this very kind of spiritual place in Leah. I feel like the potential for like that kind of connection to you know a sense of spirit and higher power. So I think that that could potentially be really good for her as well. Mm-hmm. Speaking of twelve step recovery, um, I, <laughs> I do want to make sure before we're you know we run out of time that we do pivot to Luann. Uh, cause oh, yeah. there's no, there's no discussing alcohol R H O N Y without bringing in the Countess de Lesseps. And so I am curious sort of where you're at with her. And maybe if I'll just kind of jump the gun a little bit, I, 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 I'm so fascinated by the road that Luann walked this season of kind of outwardly, um, unapologetically claiming, you know what? I'm not comfortable calling myself an alcoholic. Um, I'm not sure I'm done with alcohol. I'm going to sort of uh, try my hand with, you know, drinking in moderation and see where that takes me. And I'm, I find myself so feeling so many different things about her journey this year. And I'm curious, like, where are you at uh, with Luann's uh, current leg of the journey? Oh, such a good, good question. It feels so complex. And I, I actually feel like it's heartbreaking to see, to be honest. I think that she has a very deep addiction to alcohol and she's justifying 
this, she's very controlled, you know, in a lot of ways, but if she's not able to have a good time without it, you know, like (laughs) the one scene that actually like, Oh, my heart just kind of tightened up a little bit. It was like some sort of scene where it was like, oh, this was her first sip of alcohol, as if that were really true. I doubt it sincerely, but it was like, oh, this is vodka in here. Oh, and then there it splits to her saying, oh, I really love the taste of vodka or something like that. And it's like, nobody loves the taste of vodka. People love what vodka does for them. So I feel like Luann could probably be somebody that could drink without having too many problems. But if she has problems and she drinks to deal with her problems, she's never going to grow. I think she actually grew a tiny bit in her journey with sobriety. Um, You know, like she actually stepped outside of herself a little bit. It still was about her. (laughs) Um, Even in her... (laughs) Um, process of, you know, I don't know. We can only ask. You you have to tell me. I know. It's like one of those things where I, it's the way that they show her making amends to a couple of people, the way that she is in community and it really highlighted the level of, I don't know, narcissism, I guess is the only, I, I hate using sort of pathological terms like that, but out of everybody on that show, it's incredible to watch her talk about herself. Oh, she's intoxicated by it. She is literally to the point that she thinks that she can be someone who's had that big of a problem with alcohol and still be able to drink because she doesn't want to give that up. Why? I would want to know why. Well, I did drop into Luann and alcohol briefly before we hopped on to this uh conversation mm. and yeah i mean it, it was very much what you're speaking to i mean it was interesting because first of all i actually felt this um kind of freezing in the heart like her heart just kind of felt very uh stuck and it was just this um general feeling of like i don't want to give this up <laughs> i mean it really felt clear it was just as simple as that it's like i i don't want to give this up and um Similar to Dorinda in some way, but far less like urgent and frantic. It was this feeling of I just I'm not I'm not willing to feel everything that I would have to feel. I'm not willing to get into deeper consciousness around my life. Like I just I, I don't want to do it. It it it's weird with Dorinda to me. It feels it does feel fast and furious and frenetic, and it feels like as you said this sort of strong current of a choice with Luann. It almost feels on an unconscious level, more of a self-directed choice. Like she actually has, I guess that's what I'm saying. Like with Dorinda, it almost feels like she has no choice. She's just like stuck on this current and she's just letting her, letting it take her where it's going to take her. Whereas with Luann on an unconscious level, it feels more like a choice. It feels like she's kind of sitting there saying, yeah, I know what's in front of me. I know the choice I could be making right now. And I just don't, I, I don't want to have to take the inventory I would have to take if I removed alcohol. I, I just, I don't want to do it. It would, it would require me to change too much of my life. 
it would require me to get in touch with too much pain. And it's almost as I as I say these words, I kind of get this feeling of like, you know, I'm of a certain age at this point. Like I've already rocked the boat of my life enough. I don't want to rock it anymore. I just I don't want to do this is what I keep hearing. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about uh, like Dorinda's sort of lack of ground and kind of being all over the place, you know, that like it feels like really bubbly and, you know, messy and frantic. And then Luann, it's like an ice queen. Like for me, there's just a very, it's like a berg, you know, like going through the the water where there, it's so frozen to the point where I'm not, no, I'm not going down there. You have no idea how deep the right. bottom of this iceberg goes. And even my sobriety was just above ground. It right. was like, okay, yeah, I'm sorry for these things. I, you know, this is, I'm sorry that this got me in trouble. Basically. I don't actually feel like what a sober person committed to their sobriety deals with in terms of self-reflection, making amends. I, I don't think that actually happened. And I think she thinks she did it. I, I also, my feeling for her almost on an intuitive psychic level is if she were to really take a sober journey that truly she's someone, I feel like her whole life would change. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know why I feel this, but I, I have this feeling like it would ultimately mean her leaving the show. Like she'd have to get off the show. Um, it, it really feels to me like her entire life would change. And I do come back to this voice that kind of says like, I've done enough. You know, I feel like she kind of feels like she's weathered enough. It's like I was, you know, in that bad marriage with the count. I survived that. I got through that. There's been so much public humiliation, you know, and I, and I agree with you that there's been a small shift in her this season. Like, you know, there are these moments where she's actually connected to feelings where she's actually even willing to admit shame and humiliation where I think there was a point early on in the in, in her tenure on the show where she would never even admit to feeling things like embarrassment. Um, so there has been um, a degree of softening and a degree of dropping into a deeper vulnerability. And I just think with her, it's about as much as she can tolerate because I agree with you. I think underneath the ice, much like with Dorinda's, there's depths of things for her to kind of take stock of and to feel. Um, and I just... And I think also the place in her that is so self-obsessed, I've always gotten this feeling off of her that underneath that is just a deep sense of terror. You know, like in the place where she really wasn't getting any attention or getting the help she needed when she was young. It's almost like if I were to put words to it, it's like, oh, my God, I'm drowning here. But no one's paying attention to me. So if I even stop long enough to let myself know I'm drowning and then I call out for help, no one's going to help me and then I'm just going to drown and die. So it's just safer for me to know, to not know that I'm drowning and to just keep this all buried under ice. And so it it does feel like there's some kind of um, almost primal level of uh, like an experience around survival, like her very survival is at stake and she just doesn't want to take that life or death journey. I've done too much is what she said. That's what I hear. It's like, I've done too much. I've gone through too much already. But yeah, what were you going to say? Yeah, it's almost like when you talk about the survival piece, 
like, and you were talking about drowning. So I just had this image come to mind. Like I remember, you know, surfing and stuff where you get, when you go out far enough and then you hit like a sandbar out and then you're like on the sandbar and she's like on the sandbar and that's, that's her safety. But she, she would still have to like cross a really deep ocean to get back to shore. Mm -hmm. But she's like, I'm just going to stay right here because what it took for me to get here, nobody saw, nobody knows. I know what it is, but to go back to get somewhere else again, to, you know, like actually land, I'm not willing to do. I'm fine here. Let's you come here. You party with me, bring all your chairs. Let's hang out on this little sandbar. And then if the water starts rising a bit, you know, it's like she'll, she might paddle a little bit, but she never feels herself actually working hard anymore. I don't, I don't think she's willing. Yeah. I guess that's what you're saying. Like she's just not willing to do it. I think she's likes where she is. Yeah. Especially with the cabaret, it's all working for her right now. And I just hear her saying, I, yeah, I, I don't want to give that up. I won't give this up. I'm yeah. I'm not going to go into more discomfort. Like I've done enough. That's what, that's really what I keep hearing. It's like, I've done enough. Like give me a fucking break. But what I feel for her again, this, this feels more like an intuitive hit. I just have this feeling as long as she does keep making this choice to kind of stay where she is and to, you know, to stay engaged with the drinking, I kind of have this feeling it's always going to keep her out of finding really long-term committed relationship. Well, and that's, I was just picturing her older, you know, like I think about because cabaret, right. I think about Julie Garland, you know, people like that, that had this sort of relationship to performing and alcohol and being seen and all of that type of stuff. And then in the end, you know, like there's a way I could see her kind of, not being surrounded by a bunch of people mm -hmm. that really love and care about her. So there, there's probably a few of her family, luckily she has kids and stuff, but it's like, I just see her as being someone whose relationships are not super deep and fulfilling and like, Hey, you're in trouble. Let me help you. Yeah. I mean, it feels very alone. And uh, specifically, I just have this feeling like she's either just never going to meet a man where it becomes a committed relationship or the other option I see is that she'll end up settling for someone who doesn't really excite her for the sake of simply being with someone. But either way, that there would be this really deep experience of aloneness, um, you know, as she gets into the later stages of her life. You know, and when I say that, too, it does really bring into stark relief just kind of the bittersweet pathos of this show. Because I'm suddenly just getting this image of Luann older in, like, in her 70s or her 80s when The Real Housewives is long over. And I can just almost feel this sense of, oh, yeah, The Housewives, that thing that I did that, like, at the time gave me such a sense of purpose and what I thought was fulfillment and fame and notoriety and... Yet here it is, you know, it's over. It's not here with me anymore. And I'm at the, you know, getting toward the end of my life. And there's just this deep feeling of aloneness and kind of holding those years. I mean, especially now it's been like 12 years, you know, of my life, you know, um, sunk into this kind of strange, dark vortex of, of, of television programming and pop culture. And what do I have That's to show sad. for it? 
a lot. I remember going out to the desert. Um, we used to go to this little place and um, there was a woman there who was like, she had been a cabaret star at one point, you know, and she was like the hostess of the of the place. And it's like, it reminds me of somebody like Luann who will still be like performing somewhere at 70, at, you know, 75, just like it, but a little smaller venue or going to people's parties and doing it or something, singing happy birthday, hi, getting hired out for that just because of the name and still feeding off of that, you know, somehow still that being her only source of worth or something. When you describe her like that, she totally feels like a, a character from a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Doesn't she? Absolutely. Oh my God. A char- she is a full character. From like, you could just like, feel like, like she would fit in a Magnolia, you know, like the older totally. former oh cabaret gosh. star who's living in the old delusions of her, of her fame. Uh, but it's her voice, her clothes. I mean, like, it's the full, she's the full package that way, for sure. Who knows? I mean, maybe that's where all this is all going to head. Maybe, I mean, I could totally, if I were making movies in the future, I could totally see myself making some, like, film that's about, like, maybe that's going to be where this all heads on such a meta, meta level that once, like, the reality TV thing is morphed into something else, there's going to be a movie about Luann where she stars as Luann in a movie about her, like, empty later years, you know? It could get, like, that meta, you know? What's that one that uh, James Franco did? The Disaster Artist? That movie? Yes, like that. I just hope that she doesn't end up alone. I really, I really feel like she wants love in her life, so I just want to send <laughs> energy and support to her so that she can tune into her own heart and let that actually be the thing that attracts her next partner. Well, I do think, you know, the issue with her, I think if she genuinely wants love, she's going to have to be willing to get off the sandbar, you know, and is she willing to make that choice? Totally. Yeah, exactly. I'm sad when I think of her. (laughs) Well, she, yeah. I mean, she really, to me is someone who embodies the way in which the show truly becomes a double-edged sword or like a gilded cage. You know, it's it's given her much, you know, if you think of it as a possible vehicle for, I mean, I know it's it wasn't exactly a Tamara Varney situation where like the show gave her an out from her marriage, but it does feel like, you know, it, it, it gave her something to fall back on, certainly after the Count left her. It's given her this, you know, cabaret glory. Like there are things that she's gotten from it that, you know, it's hard to imagine her life without these things at this point. But at the same time, it does feel like it really has trapped her in a corner of her own, um, you know, her own notoriety, her own aloneness, um, you know, something to which she's clinging rather than sort of dropping more deeply into her heart. It's tough sometimes to watch that because I do think there are others who go on to the show and it's like, wow, like I really think you are better off for having, I mean, I think Tamara is a perfect example of someone who is so much better off for having been on the Housewives of Orange County. I think you could certainly make a case for Bethany, you know, being better off, you know, for having been on the Real Housewives. You know, but then there are those where it's <laughs> like you really hold the question, was this show good for you, ultimately? Well, and ultimately, that's what I would ask about the, you know, the alcohol piece, you know, that we're talking about. It's like, is this show something that 
because I don't know how often they're filming, you know, how, how much of their lives they're actually filming and for what portion of the time, but does it promote people to, if you're somebody that struggles with alcohol and you are partying like that for filming, does it support your sobriety? Well, and I think it's interesting. I mean, in the case of uh, James Kennedy and Lala, it seems they've been making it work. Uh, so it seems like it's a possibility, but, um, I'm sure for others, you know, it's probably like kryptonite. Right. Like, and can- I guess that would just depend on the person. You know, I think another interesting question in all this is just even how you define alcoholism. What does that label even mean? And who gets to decide who is an alcoholic and who isn't? And, you know, even just different kinds exactly. of sobriety, you know, I mean, I think it's interesting that Lee is doing the 12 steps now after nine or 10 years of you know, in 12 step, they call it being dry, which, uh, you know, I always have my issues with, uh, kind of negative term or judgmental terminology for someone who's not in a specific program, but it is interesting, right? That now she is turning to 12 step recovery. And that's why on a certain level, I kind of liked that Luann was saying, Hey, I'm not comfortable calling myself an alcoholic. Now, I don't know whether or not I personally agree with her, but there was something to me that was refreshing about, Oh, She's not just towing a line and saying what she thinks she's supposed to say, but she's actually sort of going out there and saying, no, I, I get to decide whether or not I am and I get to choose my course of action. And there's part of me that was like, okay, like, yeah, it's true. Yeah, I agree. And even Leah, because had Leah, she hadn't been in the program prior to this bout with alcohol, right? Like she, right. she, she said something thing like I'm just not drinking right now but she wasn't she wasn't calling herself an alcoholic right I really feel it's more empowering for people to call it what it is for them all right well thank you Piper so much for being here as always it's always an an odyssey and a journey with you and uh, you make my experience of these shows so much richer and I'm just uh, yeah really grateful that you were willing to come by and chat with me today Always. Your face comes to mind every Wednesday, Thursday night, whenever I'm watching it. I always think about, I wonder what Jamie thinks. (laughs) So Piper, I know that you've got, you tend to have a full roster of clients, but if someone's listening to this and really responding to you and your energy and what you bring, is there a way that they can reach you to see if you have any available openings for sessions? Yes, by my email, which I'm sure you will probably list Piper sample at sbcglobal.net. Okay, great. Yeah, I'll put I'll include that on my social media when I post the episode. All right. Perfect. Great. Thanks again for being here and uh we're definitely going to have you back at some point soon. All right, Jamie. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. Thanks for being here and I will see you next time on Deep Dive with Jamie Stein. Mm-hmm.